One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, "What the f are you talking about? You insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 upfront for 3 months plus taxes and fees, promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. Welcome to Season 4, Episode 11 of They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. For our UK and Australian listeners, if you want to hear more, you can now buy a copy of our new audiobook, They Walk Among Us, Available from Audible or anywhere you purchase your audiobooks. Listener caution is advised, as this episode contains adult themes and descriptions that some listeners may find distressing. Witches, warlocks, grave robbing and vampire hunters may seem like the subjects reserved for fantasy and horror films, but this case actually happened in 1970s Britain. David Robert Farrant born January 1946 in West Ham, London, was the eldest of two children, his sister younger by two years. He attended Hendon Prep School until, after failing his 11-plus exams, he was sent to Hawkehurst Court, a private boarding school in Sussex, from the age of 11 to 13. Farrant returned home on the holidays. After that, he attended Thornlow School in Weymouth for two years, but left school at 15 with no qualifications. 
He later told the medical officer that his mother died in 1959 when he was 13. Half a decade later, his father married a much younger woman, but sadly he was diagnosed with an aggressive form of multiple sclerosis. David's father died from complications three years later. After leaving school, he took jobs as a kitchen porter and a waiter, moving between Spain and France over a period of the next four years. While there, he supported himself with kitchen work, dabbling in photography, before returning to England. When back on British soil, he worked in a newsagent and a tobacconist. At 21, David married a woman he met in Spain, and they went on to have two children in short succession. The couple set up a children's clothes shop together, but after a burglary, the business couldn't recover. The marriage was rocky at best, and finally fell apart for good in 1970. His wife returned to Spain with the children. The court ordered David to send £5 a week to his young family, though the divorce was not officially finalised until 1974. He periodically returned to Spain, and while in England he supported himself through a variety of different jobs, one being in Barnet General Hospital. By now his sister, an only surviving member of the Farrant family, had moved to New Zealand. David Farrant said his interest in the supernatural and the occult was sparked at a young age by his mother, who was a medium. Throughout his teenage and adult years, he studied books in spiritualism, witchcraft and the supernatural. This eventually led to him, so he would claim, jointly founding the British Occult Society with another man, Sean Manchester. Farrant had appointed himself with the title of High Priest. He said the society was founded in 1969, while he had been working as a kitchen porter. Farrant subsequently moved into a flat above a chemist on Archway Road in Highgate, London, and began to give interviews to newspapers and make appearances on television, talking about the occult. It provided him an extra income, and an ever-growing following. After Farrant contacted the local papers in 1970, the Highgate and Hampstead Express newspaper published his writings. The following was taken from its pages on February 6th. Some nights, I walk home past the gates at Highgate Cemetery. On three occasions I've seen what appeared to be a ghost-like figure inside the gates at the top of Swain's Lane. The first occasion on Christmas Eve, I saw a grey figure a few seconds before it disappeared into the darkness. The second sighting a week later was also brief. Last week the figure appeared only a few yards inside the gate. This time it was there long enough for me to see it much more clearly and now I can think of no other explanation than this apparition being supernatural. I have no knowledge in this field, and I would be interested to hear if any other readers have seen anything of this nature. 
The next month, Farrant again appeared in the newspaper, this time pictured with Sean Manchester, the president of the British Occult Society. He said he returned to Highgate Cemetery, where he had observed a ghost and discovered a dead fox. He said, quote, The odd thing is, there is no outward sign of how they died. Farrant went on to explain he believed a vampire was the most likely answer. The high priest of the British Occult Society told the paper from his home, quote, Should this be so, I for one am prepared to pursue it, taking whatever means that might be necessary so that we can all rest. Sean Manchester voiced his opinion that, quote, The king vampire of the undead walks again. These incidences are just more inexplicable events that seem to complement my theory about a vampire. A spokesperson from the Highgate Cemetery disputed the claims made by the occult society, insisting he had not seen any dead foxes, only ones that were alive. Full-time graveyard worker Raymond Cooper, who had been employed there for three years, said that he had never seen apparitions even when he worked at night. Farrant appeared in various newspapers, often mentioning vampires and Highgate, though he was sometimes referred to as Alan rather than David. As his notoriety grew, he was being interviewed by larger papers like the Daily Mirror. In one such article, he was pictured wearing a large wooden cross around his neck and wielding a stake. Farrant said of the vampire he was hunting, quote, I think he sleeps during the day in a coffin in the catacombs. As there is a full moon, I am certain to see him tonight. He performed a reenactment of his vampire hunting activities for the BBC in 1970. Farrant was filmed jumping over a wall, then walking around some overgrown grass near the tombs, armed with a wooden stake and a cross. Farrant told a reporter he had seen a vampire. I have seen it, yes. I saw it last February, and I saw it on two occasions. It took the form of a tall, grey figure, and it, about eight feet tall, and it seemed to glide off the path without making any noise. The foreman for the gravediggers had worked in that position for over two decades. He spoke of the destruction to the cemetery in recent years. This plate glass type here is to cover all these concrete blocks here. That one there, that was smashed, the glass was smashed in there, and bam, has got in there, crawled through, broke open the coffin, emptied the corpse out on the floor, and took the, the metal container which the body was in. The foreman went on to talk about the damage in the tombs. Down this part here, there's two tombs broken into. One on the left-hand side here, the doors were broken open, the coffin was off pulled over and a big iron stake stuck through into the coffin. He was questioned about the people that caused the damage. I mean, these people that come and do these sort of things, I mean, it's, I, well, you can't really put the words what, you, uh, what they're really trying to get at. But I think the best thing to do if we could get one of these people to stop this nonsense is to get, get one, put him in one of these tombs and, and lock him up and leave him there all night and see if he, in fact, he can find a vampire. 
On April 8, 1973, articles about a fracture between the founders of the British Occult Society were ran in both the Sunday Mirror and the Sunday People. David Farrant and co-founder of the society Sean Manchester were planning a supernatural duel on Parliament Hill in Highgate on Friday the 13th. Despite hundreds of posters announcing the battle and its whereabouts being put up all around North London, Manchester said, I advise people not to attend. They may be easily horrified. My opponent intends to raise a demon to destroy me by killing a cat. Farrant responded, Blood must be spilled for my efforts to be successful. And went on to say, For these ceremonies, our members are usually naked. Whether it was just to gain press for the society or not, their behaviour was certainly drawing attention. An RSPCA spokesman responded regarding the sacrifice of a cat, quote, We will take strenuous action to stop this medieval practice. Farrant said the police visited him and advised him to call off the duel, but he refused. A police spokesperson was reported as saying, we shall keep an eye on the situation. Unfortunately, there is no public record as to whether or not the supernatural duel actually went ahead, but the News of the World published an article about David Farrant in September 1973. It stated that he was a high priest of a witchcraft coven and founder of the British Occult Society. In medium typeface, the news of the world investigates a growing menace. The headline in bold font read, Unmasked, this evil high priest of witchcraft. Although in the article David Farrant admitted to participating in witchcraft and ceremonies, he did not mention black magic. The reporter claimed that in one of his ceremonies, held in Highgate Woods, Farrant slit the throat of a cat and 12 of his followers smeared its blood over themselves before engaging in a group sex session. Farrant was quoted as saying, I did not enjoy having to kill a cat, but for one particular part of the ritual it was necessary. The sacrifice of a living creature represents the ultimate act in invoking a deity. I do not see animal sacrifice as drastic as people have made it out to be. Thousands of cats are used annually for medical research. The very livestock we eat have their throats cut, and at least I anesthetized the cat before I had to kill it. A 21-year-old French au pair who had since returned to France confirmed the ceremony had taken place. She was one of the 12 people who attended. The police and the RSPCA became aware of the press reports and inquiries were made but ultimately led nowhere. After confirming with his solicitor that a prosecution could be made, upon advice, Farrant refused to divulge where the cat had been buried. The area where he had been known to perform the ceremonies was searched but only chicken bones and organs that most likely came from butchers were found. With the lack of cat's bones, no substantial evidence was collected and no prosecution could be made. Mm-hmm.
architect John Winter, a resident of Highgate, had parked his Ford Cortina in a parking space at the entrance of Highgate Cemetery at approximately 8pm on Friday, January 11, 1974. The space was conveniently a short walking distance to his home on Swains Lane. The car was left there all night while John Winter got on with his weekend. He returned just over 12 hours later at 8.45am. As he got in the driver's seat, he noticed something that had most certainly not been in the passenger seat the previous evening. He at first thought the object to be a tree stump, but upon closer inspection, John Winter was horrified to learn it was a headless corpse in an advanced stage of decomposition. He immediately called the police. In the meantime, Raymond Cooper, a graveyard worker at Highgate, observed the situation. After the authorities had arrived and taken the necessary statements, Raymond Cooper removed the body from the car and placed it in the cemetery's chapel. On the Monday, Richard Dawn, a gardener employed to maintain the cemetery, started his working week checking vaults trying to piece together where the body came from. Upon approaching the Patsy family vault, he discovered the gate surrounding it had been opened. He went inside the stone enclosure and found a coffin damaged with its lid ajar. When he peered inside, it was void of the body that had been laid to rest within it. Dawn finished looking around the grounds but did not find any further damage. He collected the remains from the chapel and put them back in the coffin. Three days later, with some of his colleagues, Detective Inspector Arthur Trim visited the cemetery and along with Richard Dawn went to the Patsy vault to document the headless body in the damaged coffin. By the time David Farrant was arrested in connection with the incident, the police were well aware of his nocturnal activities. It was not only his beliefs that put him in the firing line, but his criminal record did not help either. One previous conviction on file dated back to November 1972 for indecent behaviour in a graveyard. He was fined £10 at Barnet Magistrates Court. On or before January 12, 1974, the police believed Farrant had removed a corpse from a tomb at Highgate Cemetery. Also on the 12th or before, he entered as a trespasser with persons unknown into a building in the cemetery known as the Patsy Vault. Police believe they went there to cause unlawful damage. The following month, a collection of officers including Detective Inspector Arthur Trim and Detective Constable Whitaker, went to David Farrant's flat in Archway Road on February 8th. They were met by Mr Hendricks who owned the property. Hendricks was shown a warrant and being the landlord, he produced a key. Initially, however, police could not gain entry to the property because as well as the lock on the door, Farrant had also used a padlock. After a considerable amount of force, D.I. Trim managed to prise it open. 
As they entered, police recorded the scene. To the right was an altar covered in a black cloth. On it sat two knives in sheaths. On one wall there was a large hand-painted face. Other items of note were a small number of containers with herbs inside, two black candles and two clay dolls pierced with pins. The room contained a single bed, wardrobe and a chest of drawers. During the search, police discovered some rather incriminating evidence. Inside of a cardboard shoebox, officers found a revolver and a canvas holster, a loose bullet, and written on the inside flap of the holster was Farrant R.D. A large amount of photographs and negatives lined the inside of the drawers, along with a stack of press cuttings. The police also documented two personal notebooks and a torch placed on the mantelpiece. On the bed lay a woolen blanket, sheets and pillowcases marked with the stamp of Farrant's former workplace, Barnet General Hospital. Police stripped them off the bed and kept them as evidence. Detective Inspector Trim went back to the station with the evidence they had removed from the flat and Detective Constable Whitaker stayed at the scene waiting for David Farrant to return. At about 5pm he came home. He was told the police had a warrant to search his property and some of his possessions had been taken. DC Whitaker requested Farrant accompany him to Kentish Town Police Station. Farrant asked, Is this about the body at the cemetery? Whitaker replied, That's part of it. I thought it would be. I was expecting it, Farrant said. At 6.30 that evening, Detective Inspector Arthur Trim questioned David Farrant. Trim told him they had searched his flat with a warrant and they had seized a number of items. According to D.I. Trim, their conversation played out as follows. Farrant said, quote, I can account for everything I have. Trim cautioned him and said, We will start with the revolver which was in a box over the wardrobe. It has your name inside. Farrant. It was my father's. I just kept it. Trim. Where is your father? He died five years ago. Have you a firearm certificate for this? No. There is a bullet for the gun. I thought it was more than one. Have you a firearm certificate for the bullet? No, said Farrant. You have had long enough to apply for one, why didn't you? What will you charge me with? There is a lot more yet, replied D.I. Trim. Farrant was shown the bed linen retrieved from his flat earlier that day. This was on your bed. These identification marks are from Barnet General Hospital. You worked at the hospital. What are they doing in your room? I took them when I was at the hospital. I left in a bit of a hurry and I kept them. 
You're not entitled to take any property from the hospital for your own use. When did you leave? asked Trim. Last May. You stole these articles and you will be charged with that. This will look bad for my society, stealing. You said you had a warrant. Who phoned you about me? Trim responded. I was coming to that. You are very good at inventing situations by writing letters in false names, accusing yourself of things and then protesting your innocence in the press. You were just starting to create such a situation over the body taken from Highgate Cemetery on the 12th of January. I believe you were the one who did it. You would never understand it if I tell you anything, said Farrant. I know somebody broke open a coffin and took a corpse for some black magic ritual and when they got outside the cemetery, for some reason they put it in a parked car. It could be the smell was just too much. I just don't know. You're all the same. You don't understand. Just try me. I am willing to listen or write down any explanation you can give. David Farrant responded, trying to explain his position in his self-created British occult society. I am the President and High Priest of the British Occult Society. We have over 300 members. I took an oath never to reveal the name or the identity of another member. I will tell you this. The corpse was needed to contact the spirits of another world. This is not black magic. I never go in for that. Really? said D.I. Trim. How do you explain all these photographs and negatives of you inside the catacombs and tombs in the cemetery, all found in your room? Farrant then admitted to being in the tombs, but denied causing damage or performing black magic which the officer believed he performed. D.I. Trim brought up the subject of the clay dolls pierced with pins found in Farrant's flat. You do black magic? What about those voodoo dolls at the altar? Again, you don't understand. They are for healing. Wrong, Mr. Farrant. This time I do understand. With the pins in the mouth and through the eyes, that is in no way healing. That's black magic. To progress, one has to do research, said Farrant. Later in the interview, David Farrant requested to phone his solicitor David Offenbach but the call wasn't picked up. Farrant was returned to his cells until morning, and Detective Inspector Arthur Trim, short-staffed while his team were investigating a murder, took the time to review the photographs and negatives he had seized from Farrant's flat. The next day, a Saturday, an attempt was made just before 10am to make contact with his solicitor for the second time. Again, the call was left unanswered. Farrant's scrapbook of press clippings pictured him in vaults and tombs, as did his personal photographs and negatives. In some, he was clearly in a tomb that belonged to someone called Corey Wright. He was accompanied by a young, naked, dark-haired woman that bore a resemblance to the French au pair that had given an interview to the News of the World months earlier. David Farrant claimed he was performing an exorcism, but D.I. Trim disagreed. Only vicars and the like can do that. You have no qualifications. Farrant responded, quote, My society do no harm. 
Detective Inspector Trim pointed out to Farrant that all of the press clippings in the book were articles Farrant had kept on himself, bar the two at the end, which referred to the decomposing body that had been removed from Highgate Cemetery and left in John Winter's car. Trim then showed Farrant a photograph of a skull inside a coffin. He said, Inside the Patsy family vault where the corpse was taken is a plinth and a bust. The head on the bust appears identical to the head inside the coffin, even down to the moustache. I think they are the same. Farrant responded, It isn't. That photograph was taken about last September. If you open a lead-lined coffin, it's like opening a tin of sardines. There is a vacuum, and once the air gets to the corpse, it disintegrates within hours. Farrant was asked to name his accomplices, and again he refused. Amongst Farrant's things, Arthur Trim discovered letters in Farrant's notebook, which had been drafted to send to the press to accuse himself of the removal of the body. Trim questioned whether it was for publicity but Farrant claimed he wrote them as a joke. One of the letters appeared to be a draft with several corrections. It read as follows. What evil intentions these people who remove bodies from Highgate Cemetery must have. Not only are they violating the dead, as your correspondent stated last week, but indeed any common laws of decency which most of us abide by. Your recent reports about the sick actions of Mr. David Farrant and co. make one wonder just how far people connected in that field are prepared to go. Perhaps Mr. Farrant himself could shed some light there. The letter went on to further voice disgust at the removal of the corpse and point the finger at David Farrant. Amongst the letters which Trim believed to be all written by the hand of David Farrant, was one that was said to be from a Isabel Kendrick who lived at 128 Chesterfield Road, though no postcode was noted. Sir, although I do not live in the area covered by your paper, I was fortunate enough to read last Friday's issue, which one of my friends brought to work. My friends and I were most intrigued to read Mr. Farrant's interview, as we had not realised local papers were willing to run articles of this nature. As we are extremely interested in this subject, we would like to congratulate you and Mr. Farrant for such a well-informed piece of work. Still without representation, later in the interview, Farrant refused to discuss the letters and said, I'd rather not say anything about that until I have had a talk with my solicitor. In David Farrant's belongings, two receipts were discovered for two parcels sent recorded delivery to Barnet Police Station a month earlier. Detective Constable Michael Westmore and temporary Detective Constable David Campbell Reed both received a surprise package on January 5th, 1974. The parcels each contained a clay doll penetrated by four needles. A letter was enclosed handwritten in white chalk on black paper, stating that harm would come to them within one month and it was signed by David Farrant, High Priest. The dolls mirrored the ones found in David Farrant's home. 
the letters tried to dissuade the officers from giving evidence in a court case coming up for a John Russell Pope. Threats were used. In a later interview at the police station, Detective Inspector Trim asked Farrant for an explanation, and he allegedly responded, quote, They were dealing with a friend of mine, and I didn't like the way they were doing it. The mark of death is on each, and something will happen to them soon. John Russell Pope was a friend of David Farrant's. It was on record that Pope was also due to stand trial for arson along with Farrant after they allegedly lit a fire in a coffin at Highgate Cemetery. After his arrest in February, Pope gave a statement to police. In it, he said Farrant had shown him two clippings from newspaper articles on the body stolen from Highgate Cemetery. Pope asked his friend if he had anything to do with it, but Farrant only responded with a smile. Pope claimed Farrant had confessed to having a mummified head in his possession, but said it was not kept in his flat, but somewhere safe. The two clay dolls were sent to the officers in Barnet after Pope was arrested on New Year's Eve for indecency towards young boys. Pope said of the removal of the body, quote, I was not present when he did the ritual. I've been asked by police about two effigies, but have no knowledge of these being sent. I do not know what the signs are that are on them. Police believe that Farrant's friend was not involved in the theft of the body, and Trim wrote in a police report that Pope was, quote, mentally backward and is completely under the influence of Farrant. I do not think he was concerned in this matter, despite his mentality. He will make an excellent witness and is well conversant in the occult and the meaning of various symbols. David Farrant would later dispute the accuracy of the statements he allegedly provided. D.I. Trim had recorded it via pen and notepad which was standard in the days before interviews were electronically recorded. Officers present while Farrant gave his statement confirmed what Trim had written down was correct. The self-proclaimed vampire hunter remained in custody until his court date five months later. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details hey it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith co-star of my upcoming film If only in theaters May 17th do you want to tell people the big news All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. In three separate trials at the Old Bailey, spread out through June 1974, David Farrant of Archway Road Highgate faced a number of charges, to which he pleaded not guilty. In the first trial, he faced charges of damaging a memorial of the dead under the Malicious Damages Act of 1861, conspiracy to damage property, and three charges of unlawfully entering an internment and interfering with a body therein. In the second trial, he was charged with theft and handling of stolen property in relation to the bedding from Barnet General Hospital. Also at these proceedings, he pleaded guilty to charges of possession of a firearm without a firearm certificate, and possession of ammunition. And in a third trial, he faced charges of using threats to prevent or dissuade a witness from giving evidence in criminal proceedings. He had also been due to face a charge of conspiracy to affect a public nuisance, although this was later quashed. David Farrant chose to represent himself after a conversation with his barrister. Shortly before the trials, he had found out some of the charges he faced had been changed and more had been added. When Farrant heard the news, he was made to wait in his cell while his barrister was still engaged with another case. When they went into the interview room, David Farrant was asked if he wanted to apply for an adjournment in light of the extra charges, as his barrister did not have time to properly address them. Farrant responded, 
No, let us get this case over with. He was reportedly fed up with the charges being changed, so decided to go ahead as his own counsel. The following account details the witness testimony taken from each of the trials. A statement taken from David Davis, an assistant secretary at Barnet General Hospital, confirmed that the bed linens and towels marked with the hospital's name found in Farrant's possession were taken from the care facility at a cost he estimated at £5. But under the hospital's employment, David Farrant was listed and known as Alan David Ellison. His employer would only learn his true identity when they saw a newspaper article with the porter using the name David Farrant. In a witness statement, the gardener of Highgate Cemetery, Richard Dawn, said he returned the stolen body to its rightful place when he got to work on Monday, January 14, 1974. He could not say when the Patsy family vault had been disturbed and the corpse removed from the coffin. While on the stand, Dawn identified some of the photograph exhibits as images from the Corey Wright vault. He explained that it was his job to scrub off marks and symbols which had been made in the tomb on numerous occasions. William Law, who at the time was head foreman at Highgate Cemetery, also gave a written statement explaining where people were permitted to go within the grounds and at what time. He insisted the walls were high and gates were locked, stopping people just wandering in unless they used the front entrance near Swain's Lane. This was manned by a member of staff during working hours. The head foreman recalled the last time he saw David Farrant. Approximately three years earlier, along with the press, Farrant and a crowd attempted to gain entry to the cemetery. Along with Sean Manchester, the pair were leading a group of people on an investigation to find the supernatural. William Law wouldn't let them in, saying it was private property. In court, Law was shown a photograph, Exhibit AT-4A. The witness explained that it pictured a head of a man inside a coffin, which had been smashed open. Law said, quote, This, in my experience, is a photograph taken shortly after the coffin had been opened, as the head is in good condition, and would soon begin to go off if exposed to air. The witness told the court that he had been instructed to brick up the Corey Wright vault by the family, after it had been broken into twice in a short period of time. Law identified the man he knew as David Farrant with a naked young female in the Corey Wright vault in photograph exhibit AT-4B. More black and white photographs showed David Farrant in front of the Corey Wright tomb, with the entrance door open. William Law insisted it was always locked. Farrant appeared to be standing beside a body in a shroud, but William Law said he had no knowledge of a disturbance to a corpse in that tomb. Law recalled an incident that had taken place in the summer of the previous year. Another vault, 
this time belonging to the Cox family, had been unlawfully entered. A coffin was prized open and the body inside was set on fire. I had Reverend of Highgate Harry Edwards recounted an incident where he took his grandsons for a walk in the old part of the cemetery near the tombs. They stumbled across a mummified corpse of a female, but not before one of the children accidentally stepped on it. The former Reverend recalled later, a member from the Corey Wright family visited him in distress. She had discovered the family's tomb had been desecrated. She requested a reconsecration, and the Reverend obliged. He recalled the brass door to the Corey Wright's tomb was wide open, the stained glass within it smashed, as were two urns that contained ashes. Harry Edwards gave the date as January 29th, just over two weeks since the body had been removed from the Patsy vault, and two weeks before Farron's arrest. Judge Michael Argyle explained to David Farrant the procedure of taking notes and pacing oneself before the defendant representing himself gave his side of the story. The judge said, You must say whatever you wish, of course, and we will listen. The only thing I'm going to remind you about is there are these five charges. Have you got a copy of your charge sheet with you? Farrant replied, Yes, I have somewhere. The judge continued, I hope at some stage you are going to deal with each charge one by one and tell us what your defence is to the various charges so the jury and I can follow. Having said that, I do not propose to say any more. It is up to you. So off you go. Farrant began, quote, Members of the jury, I think I should start by trying to explain to you exactly what I believe. Through these court proceedings, you may have heard words of witchcraft, black magic, white magic, necromancy, and Satanism time and time again. I do not think you can possibly have any idea of the true meanings behind any of these words, or what they are supposed to mean applying to myself, and I must start by trying to explain to you exactly what I am. I am a follower of a religion known as Wicca, commonly known and used by the press as witchcraft. It is a religion which we believe, and in fact, no, dates back thousands of years. It is not a religion which denies the existence of God, and it is not a religion which denies the existence of the devil either. We accept the existence of God, but the one difference is, and I am trying to put this very, very simply, we also accept the existence of Goddess. This might seem strange to you, but it is not really strange. We believe it is a feminine principle which everything was created. My religion is followed in this country by the estimated number, according to the press, of 60,000 people. I would say perhaps the numbers are a little more than that. Farrant went on to explain more about Wiccan traditions and ceremonies, clarifying he was a priest and entitled to conduct ceremonies. He spoke of the historic condemnation of witches 
referring to the 16th century, quote, You must be well aware of the local stories where it is easy to imagine in a village community where cows become ill or crops failed or a newborn baby died, and what could it be but the work of witches connected with witchcraft? We believe that persecution still goes on today. One of my objectives is to try and bring this before the public. I've been accused of trying to gain publicity, and all I can say to that is yes, it's true. May I explain that my work is based on writings. I have, in fact, nearly completed a book, and I've written numerous articles. Surely the object of every author is to have his work published. If we could say all authors only wanted publicity, we would have no books and no religious works. I do not, of course, seek the sort of publicity which is round this case. Farrant addressed the photographs of nude women that had been presented to the court. Quote, I hope you will realise that these photographs have no relation to orgies unless you consider a picture of a naked lady automatically refers to an orgy going on. This is another important point. We regard sex as a pure unnatural thing. It only becomes abused and corrupted by the minds of men. Farrant claimed throughout the trials that he was being persecuted for his beliefs. After explaining his beliefs, Farrant then finally turned to the topic of his charges. In regard to the damage at Highgate Cemetery, Farrant recalled how it was already vandalised when he visited with some members of the British Occult Society to investigate paranormal phenomena. When we investigated the Highgate Cemetery, we found the Corey Wright Vault open in the beginning of October 1971. Farrant believed the tomb had already been used by a black magic sect. He said the first thing the society did was take pictures of the open tomb the same ones the jury had already seen. After they took the photos, Farrant contacted the editor of the Hampstead and Highgate Express newspaper, Mr. Eisenman. Eisenman had run stories on Highgate Cemetery and the High Priest of the Occult Society, advising Farrant to contact him with anything new. But David Farrant said Eisenman wasn't interested in running a story about an old tomb being destroyed by a black magic sect, instead preferring to run a story on unexplained phenomenon. David Farrant also told the court about taking a journalist around the catacombs at the cemetery. At the time, many of the vaults were exposed or damaged, and had been so for at least a year according to the defendant. Various photographs of him were taken, one where he stood over an open coffin with exposed skeletal remains. Farrant insisted he didn't touch the remains, just pose for the picture. This photo, along with others, had been used by the prosecution as evidence that Farrant had been the one removing the bodies and vandalising the cemetery. He insisted the photographs were staged. Farrant was asked to up the paranormal angle, clasping a rosary and a book, or stood with a torch even though it was daylight. The defendant suggested that his journals, the police took as evidence, 
been conveniently rearranged. Farrant was clearly not a legal professional and frequently went off on tangents, making it difficult for the jury to follow his train of thought as he tried to mount his defence. The judge was aware of the time the evidence-in-chief was taking, as Farrant was essentially questioning himself, though made it clear it would take as long as it needed to. Even in spite of the judge's best efforts to steer Farrant on the right track, the defendant then mentioned an incident in December 1973, when he and John Pope were arrested for arson when they lit a fire in a coffin at Highgate Cemetery. Farrant explained the pair attended court the following March, a month after he was arrested in connection with the stolen body, but the case was dismissed as there appeared to be no damage to the coffin. He was harming his own credibility as a witness and the judge recommended that the jury ignore his admission. Also, Farrant had been struggling to mount a suitable defence against the period in which it was claimed he had caused damage in the cemetery. The dates ranged between October 14, 1971 and December 31, 1973. Farrant exclaimed, This is a very vague figure. If I was accused of doing damage on a certain day, I would have had time to prepare a defence. I would have had time to explain, to think back. However difficult it may be, one can trace one's movements back when necessary. But how am I expected to put forward a defence or an alibi which is necessary, covering three years? David Farrant provided an alibi for his whereabouts on the evening of Friday 11th 1974 and the morning of January 12th when the body had been taken from the Patsy tomb and placed in John Winter's car. At 8pm on Friday, Farrant was at his home in Highgate. Pamela Wright, who lived in the flat at the time, was also there according to Farrant, but Pamela could not be tracked down to confirm this. A second woman, Julie Batsford, was also said to be at the property. David Farrant and Julie left to walk to Highgate Village and went to the Angel Pub. They had been seen there by a Susan Cross. Later, the couple moved on to a second pub, the Red Lion and Sun, in North Hill, Highgate. At around 11pm, David returned with Julie to his flat until the early hours of the morning. David walked his guests some of the way home, and then he returned to bed until he awoke at 10.30am. a surprise witness would also address the court. Anthony Field was a 24-year-old man from Islington. Only the week before, he had been sentenced to 10 years in prison for armed robbery. He told the court that one night he went out drinking in a West End club with four friends. At midnight, they decided to go to a cemetery for what Field said was a laugh. He said this wasn't the first time he and his friends had visited Highgate Cemetery late at night. Field claimed in a separate incident, not long before when he went there with a friend, they discovered an open casket in the catacombs and his friend removed the corpse and proceeded to dance with it. 
Hatfield then went on to tell the jury about the night he and his four friends arrived at Highgate Cemetery in an inebriated state. Quote, I found an iron gate had been smashed. Inside was a coffin that was also smashed. Took the body out, and with the others, I carried it to the main gate. The body was thrown over the gate, and they all climbed back over to the other side. One of the others picked up the corpse and took its head off, then bent its legs into the sitting position and placed it into a parked car outside the gates. Could it be that Farrant was indeed innocent of the initial charge for which he was arrested? Was it his beliefs, eccentric personality and desire to tell tall tales that sparked his arrest and eventual prosecution? Dr Oliver Briscoe was called to the stand. The witness said, in his opinion, David Farrant was not suffering any mental illness. Quote, Farrant didn't consider how his practices were viewed by the public, but later realised that his actions could have been offensive to some people. Dr Briscoe said David Farrant regretted his actions. He voiced his opinion that, quote, undue preoccupation with the supernatural could lead to a mental disorder. He suggested some sort of consultative treatment for David Farrant, possibly under a probation order. In a letter to the court, a senior medical officer said in his report, quote, He is of average intelligence. There is no history of mental disorder. He appears to be knowledgeable about the occult and such topics as vampires, apparitions and black magic. David Farrant, in my opinion, is not suffering from any form of mental disorder for which compulsory detention in a mental hospital under Section 60 procedure could be recommended to the court. Neither is he in need of any psychiatric treatment offered or on a voluntary basis. An extract from Farrant's medical report said, He undoubtedly has some sincere beliefs, and while these and his actions may appear eccentric to say the least to some and ludicrous to others, they in no way indicate a mental disorder. He presents as a pleasant, albeit perhaps timid man, who I think is quite dismayed at the situation in which he finds himself. A witness for the prosecution was called to the stand. Mr. Kidd, one of the directors for United Cemeteries who owned Highgate. He said the cemetery had still been plagued with vandalism and desecration, with some of the fragile stone of the tombs destroyed, even while David Farrant had been held in custody. Judge Argyle had visited the cemetery for himself. On that day, he saw a corpse that was no longer in its resting place. It had been removed and mutilated. Francis King, an author of several books on the occult, was asked to explain to the court what some of the symbols meant that David Farrant had drawn in his notebook. King said, quote, I'm familiar in the sense of symbols used by people who believe they are magicians. The witness was asked to decipher particular pages. King said there was nothing he thought that was connected to black magic on page 1, 3, 4, 5 and 6. The writings just showed someone who seriously studied the occult, 
The judge said, quote, Look at page two. Is there anything black magical about that? Page two, he said, had John Pope's name and date of birth. Reed and Westmore, the officers who were sent the dolls, were named on that page with numbers underneath. The judge was told, quote, It could have a sinister interpretation. Nothing specific. Whoever wrote these names may have wanted to heal somebody or harm somebody. The witness could not attribute any of the pages to black magic, but the letter sent to the officers along with the dolls, in his opinion, were different. King said the clay figures were, quote, intended to kill somebody, not just to silence them. If it had been intended just to silence them, there would be pins through their mouth only. There seems to be a pin right through the approximate position of the heart. John Pope, a labourer from Barnet and friend to Farrant, was called as a witness. He confirmed that the two officers that received the dolls were the ones involved in his arrest on New Year's Eve. After his release the following day, he said that he visited Farrant and told him what happened. What did you say to him? Pope was asked. I explained the nature of the case and asked if he could do something about it magically. Asked how the matter concluded, Pope said, quote, We decided to perform a ritual. He said he would perform it on his own, and that should do the trick. A ritual affecting who, the witness was asked. The police officers. Judge Argyle asked, What was the object of the ritual? To prevent them from doing me any physical harm and saying anything against me, more than was actually necessary in the case. Pope had told Farrant that he wasn't guilty of the crime he was arrested for, but the two officers coerced him into signing a written statement by threatening him. Farrant said his friend had told him that one of the officers had knocked his head against the wall in the interview room, though on the stand John Pope denied telling his friend this. In this trial, The judge had been taking down notes so he could sum up the case to the jury. When considering Mr. Pope's evidence, he advised the jury to take care, quote, If you do not agree with what I've written, it is up to you, members of the jury. I wrote against Mr. Pope, small man, bearded, and I put very dim. I do not know whether you agree with that or not, but he seemed to not be quite with it somehow. He was wearing a blazer with a key on the breast pocket and on looking at it more closely it was a large male organ and inside it as far as I could see a number of smaller penises. There he is members of the jury and I advise you to approach his evidence with care. Following three separate trials, David Farrant was unanimously found guilty on most counts. Damaging a memorial of the dead under the Malicious Damages Act of 1861, conspiracy to damage property, theft and handling of stolen property, threatening to prevent or dissuade a witness from giving evidence in criminal proceedings, 
and one charge of unlawfully entering an internment and interfering with the body therein. He was found not guilty on two charges relating to entering an internment and interfering with the body, one of which related to the charge he was initially arrested for after a corpse from Highgate Cemetery had been left in John Winter's car. The jury believed Farrant's alibi and Anthony Field's confession. A month after the guilty verdicts, on July 17th, David Farrant was sentenced to four years, eight months in prison and required to pay £750 in costs. Judge Michael Argyle said, The offences involve great offence to ordinary people. You claim throughout that you were being persecuted. Evidence has emerged that the boot was on the other foot. You proceeded quite regardless of the feelings of ordinary people. The case was covered by most major newspapers and some members of the public disputed David Farrant's claim that he practiced white, not black magic. Shortly after the trial, the police received a handwritten letter. It read as follows. Dear Sirs, I read of the David Farrant case in the paper and that he says he never uses black magic. I thought you might find the enclosed newspaper articles interesting. They already show that he does use black magic. Yours sincerely. It is signed that the handwriting is barely legible. It looks to be J. Pritchard. Newspaper clippings were enclosed, including the two-page spread from the News of the World article written in September 1973, titled Unmasked, This Evil Priest of Witchcraft, but confusingly, it clearly points out that David Farrant said that he did not perform black magic. In March of the following year, David Farrant appealed his sentence. Acting on his behalf, Farrant's counsel said, quote, Lots of people have eccentricities, which they can find to themselves or do no harm to others. Farrant's great fault is that he's an exhibitionist. Though his prison time was not quashed in its entirety, the judge ruled that Farrant should not have to serve eight months for the theft of bedding from Barnet General Hospital. After David Farrant left prison, he married Colette Sully, otherwise known as Colette G. She was the female in the photograph submitted for evidence at Farrant's trial. A poster made the rounds advertising another event where David Farrant and Sean Manchester would go up against each other in another supernatural duel. Alongside photographs of the two, the handwritten post penned in large letters read, A personal vendetta over the years becomes a duel to the death between Manchester, Grand Master of the Occult, and Farrant, High Priest of Witchcraft, locked in murderous absurdity. Britain's most infamous magicians intend to resolve their feud to the death at Queenswood Highgate, August 18th, 1978. It can only be assumed both men were not hurt too badly in their duel 
as in 1979 Farrant filed a liable case against the authors of two articles in the Daily Express, published after he was convicted five years earlier. Farrant said they ruined his reputation. One article was titled, Fate Catches Up With The Witch, and the other, Why Does It Always End In Sex? At the libel trial, an odd scene, similar to the ones years before, played out in court. Some of the staff from Highgate were brought back yet again as witnesses to describe the damage caused at the cemetery. One jury member became extremely distressed and was allowed to leave. The journalist Peter Lang was an eyewitness. He said he had observed a witchcraft duel between David Farrant and his old friend John Pope. During the battle at Highgate Woods, one of them plunged a staff into the ground while both were speaking incantations summoning power. The journalist recounted that an incense stick caught on a piece of paper which began to burn. At that moment, two park rangers rushed to stop the supernatural duel by stamping out the flame, telling the small crowd there are park regulations against that sort of thing. Pope told the court that he was attempting to conjure a major fireball to destroy Farrant, and it worked until the park rangers stamped it out. After a 10-day trial, the jury failed to reach a verdict. In February of the next year, at the High Court, the case was heard again. This time, blues singer Long John Baldry gave a testimony. He said he had received two dolls in miniature coffins from Farrant. There was also an incident reported in the papers where Baldry believed Farrant had stolen his cat for sacrificial purposes. According to Farrant, the cat went back home of his own accord weeks later. The jury found unanimously Farrant had not proved his case, and it was dismissed. He needed to raise £20,000 for legal costs, and according to the Guardian newspaper, he was requesting £1 from each of his followers to help cover it. David Farrant was an extraordinarily controversial figure, and some of his many feuds, like the one with Sean Manchester who Farrant claimed headed the British Occult Society with, lasted his entire life. Some people dispute Farrant's link to the society at all. Sean Manchester, who went on to become Bishop of Glastonbury, published a book, The Highgate Vampire, the infernal world of the undead unearthed at London's Highgate Cemetery and environs. David Farrant also published a 32-page pamphlet on his account of the Highgate Vampire, titled Beyond the Highgate Vampire, a true case of supernatural occurrences and vampirism that centred around London's Highgate Cemetery. In the 2000s, Farrant self-published a pamphlet on Sean Manchester, called Man, Myth and Manchester. Bishop Manchester warned bookshops not to sell the pamphlet, as he saw it as defamatory.
So where are we now? David Farrant continued to study the occult and had a loyal following. With the birth of the internet, it gave him a new platform. He had more opportunities to speak out and put forward his beliefs without the need to drum up publicity. In this interview from 1999, he comes across as a softly spoken gentleman. Well, British Psychic and Occult Society was really started off with just a small group of people, mm. or myself included, yeah. interested in ghosts, if you like, unexplained yeah. phenomena. And it was set up to try and gain evidence of psychic activity. That was its purpose from the very beginning, and that's it, it is still its purpose to this day. He went on to say he does not believe in blood-sucking vampires, the type that steps out of a Hammer horror movie. Absolutely not. I believe that sometimes there can be ghosts, if I must use that word, which yeah. can remain earthbound, which are extremely potent forms of psychic energy. Mm. Farrant said he went to Highgate Cemetery to investigate after people reported seeing a tall, dark figure with glowing red eyes. And then one night, I actually, it was late in December, and I actually visited, visited the cemetery myself. Mm. And as I passed the top gate, I noticed a tall figure. And my first reaction was that it was somebody dressed up. Yeah. Actually, that's how real it was. Yeah. But I looked up and I actually saw two points of light red light which I took to be its size and the area had turned icy cold mm. well I, I saw what other people had described and hence we started the investigation after a long illness David Farrant passed away in April 2019 he was 73 years old after his death David's third wife Della painted a different picture from the man who appeared in the tabloids. She said that behind the unusual beliefs and mysticism was a different David. Quote, He was very much a people person, dedicated to new ideas, always interested in how the world works, not just the supernatural. People imagine him as a man with a stick and a crucifix, and although an awful lot was written about him over the years... Many, many documentaries, radio, the press. Behind that was a very kind, loving and somewhat shy man. He didn't deserve the flack he got. Thank you for listening and special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information, please see our show notes or visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.